I'm Aaron Sagers, and this is Talking Strange. Hey there, spooky nerds. Welcome to Talking Strange, a paranormal pop culture show with the Den of Geek Network. As always, I'm your host, journalist, author, researcher of weird things, Aaron Sagers. You can also catch me on 28 Days Haunted on Netflix and Paranormal Caught on Camera on Travel Channel and the Max Streaming Service. And my guest today has been on the show multiple times. He's one of my favorite people to talk to because I'm a big fan of his work and I just I just really love nerding out with him. Uh, he's a super cool dude. He is effects guru, director, and Walking Dead universe producer, Greg Nicotero. Greg's also the showrunner for Creep Show, the horror anthology series on Shudder. And honestly, I love Shudder. It is a, a excellent horror streaming service, and they're not paying me to say this. So if you are not subscribing to Shudder, honestly, what's up? Seriously, you need to get on the ball. Anyhow, Creepshow is premiering its fourth season on Friday, October 13th with a super size night of six. Count them, six episodes. And in addition to being the showrunner for Creepshow, Greg Nicotero directs two stories this season titled 20 Minutes with Cassandra and George Romero in 3D. And since Nicotero is a protege of Tom Savini and George Romero, you can expect that we'll have some Romero talk in this interview. Anyhow, he, he joins me to discuss the season of Creep Show, And, of course, we also talk about the new Walking Dead Daryl Dixon series as it also heads into its season finale. So Creep Show is kicking off and Daryl Dixon's season is wrapping up. We chat about super soldier zombies and the evolution of the walkers in Daryl Dixon. And also just about how The Walking Dead is fun once again for Greg Nicotero. So let's throw it to the interview with Greg Nicotero. Hey, Greg. Good to talk to you again, man. How are you? Hi, Aaron. I love the shirt. Oh, thank you. You know, it's it's so seasonal. I even have my little ghosty hat. Oh, on wait. Hold on. Where's my favorite? I have to show you my favorite sweatshirt. Hang on. Which I wear literally every single day. I think the I think the Daryl Dixon crew is getting tired of seeing it <laughs> because it's uh but yeah, this is our season, man. I mean I love that Halloween is becoming more more popular than uh than Christmas in my opinion. Yeah, it's funny because it is yeah, it's oh I do love that. Who who designed that actually? There's a guy there's a guy in Georgia owns a company called Dark Cycle. And he has a whole line of shirts with different things riding a bicycle, like a T-Rex, a shark, a tarantula, a lemur, an armadillo. So like my, my family and I went to a, um, to a, a swap meet in, in uh, Peachtree City and we saw it and we fell in love with this guy's stuff. And he's had the ghost riding the bicycles and I bought it and I wore it in Paris on set every single day. So that's how they could find me. Like the, the, the first AD would be like, where's the ghost on the bicycle? Oh, there's Greg right there. So it's great because, you know, so like I do on uh, my end, outside of the journalism thing, I do um, a lot of spooky TV shows like paranormal stuff and, uh, and, you know, research like lore and legends and everything. And yet it's not it's not like heavy darkness because I like to combine the fun with the spooky 
And yeah. I feel like we're allowed to do that now, right? Like it, it used to be you were either the horror kid over here or you were the, the normie over there. And now we're all allowed to be the spooky nerds. Yeah, yeah. Look, when I was a kid, nerd, nobody, you know, nerds were, nerds were, uh, you know, like the little circle with a line through it. I was the kid who loved Land of the Giants and Star Trek and Lost in Space and mm-hmm. shit like that. So, um, yeah. <clears throat> anyway, it's, spooky season is now this year round. Um, it's it's like a lifestyle. It's like it's not just Halloween time, as you said. I think. Um, I mean, not to get too uh, deep, but looking back on your work, do you think like, hey, you know, I was a part of that. The normalizing of of being the horror fan and being the spooky nerd. Yeah, you know, I had never thought of it that way because, again, you know, when I grew up, you know, I was born 1963. So I came through, you know, all the Star Trek and Erwin Allen stuff and and the disaster movies and Jaws and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, when makeup effects and and horror movies really kind of started to hit their stride in the, in the mid seventies and like Dawn of the dead and Friday the 13th, um, American Werewolf in London, you know, those were, those were like a different kind of fandom because those people were obsessed with the gore and obsessed with death and the killings and everybody kind of thought, Oh, well, that's a, it's like a subsection of, of nerds. Um, but interesting, you know, you had Fangoria magazine, but you know, a lot of people don't even remember that when, when those movies came out and were, um, played in the UK, they were censored. Mm-hmm. Like we were lucky because at least there was, there was a, a an, an opportunity to release a movie like Dawn of the Dead unrated or, or um, Mother's Day, I think might've been unrated or, or Maniac. I can't remember all of them. Whereas, you know, a lot of those movies were censored when they were, you know, overseas. So, you know, there was this fascination and I was telling somebody the other night that our country by nature was built on rebellious people. It was built on these people that like, oh, well, you tell me that I can't do this? Well, watch me. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to prove to everybody that I can do it. And that's sort of the DNA of this country. So <clears throat> for me, it really was um, sort of sticking to my guns and falling in love with all of those movies. And so I think Walking Dead, Walking Dead had a tremendous amount to do with that. Because if you really think about zombie movies prior to Shaun of the Dead or Resident Evil or um, 28 Days Later, isn't a zombie movie. Um, (laughs) You know, most zombie movies were unrated, super gory, had a very niche audience. So I think in terms of making things appeal to a broader spectrum, I think Walking Dead was was definitely in a huge part responsible for opening up this genre to a lot of people i think also honestly i look at something like from dust till dawn and you know going back obviously a few years even before walking dead and yeah. and i this is just off the top of my head it's not, i don't have like the academic research to back it up but just anecdotally it seemed like 
that was a movie when I was going to see it. Uh, I don't know. I was probably in uh, high school or something at that point. And it was one where it's like, oh, we're going to see this this Tarantino, a little bit of the old ultra violence. But oh, wow, crap. Now we have a this super great gory horror film and and vampire flick happening at the same time. Yeah. Well, you know, it was a bit of a mashup, you know, yeah. I mean, Quentin, Quentin wrote that script in exchange for us doing the makeup effects for Reservoir Dogs. So we had been friends with him for quite a long time. But I think that was a that was a unique situation. And again, a, a bit of a crossover, because yeah. really, the first half of the movie is a is a crime drama. And then once they get into the titty twister, and, and I think I, I'll never forget in the script, it literally said, and all hell breaks loose. That was the only line in the script. And then from there on in, we would just run to set, show Robert Rodriguez some gags. Hey, what do you think if we did this? And he'd be like, great, do it. Or we'd be on set and Robert would pitch an idea and I would run back to our workshop on stage and build it and then come back out and shoot it. You know, it was really that kind of thing, but yeah. that movie for sure. Um, but you know, it's strange because, you know, I still think people forget like in return and in, in regards to the gore and stuff that Halloween, the original Halloween had no gore in it. You know, when they did the remakes, the remakes were so gory and it just felt like it wasn't, the same spirit with which John had intended the the original movie to be, which was you really didn't see anything happen. It was much more about the terror of this unstopping creature. And then you had the Name on Elm Street movies. Even the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you didn't see a lot of the gore. Yeah. So I think the gore I think the gore was really introduced more into you know, you get into the seventies and then with Tom Savini and, and um, Rick Baker and Rob Bottin and Stan Winston, you know, those guys, if you really, if you really want to be honest, I think a lot of it had to do with, with the acceptance and, and the desire to do more gore in movies. Because if you think about, anything prior to 1970 you know even the exorcist which had some great makeup effects in it wasn't a gory movie it was shocking so i think it went from let's do things to shock people to then the audience responded so much to those shocking moments that the filmmakers and the effects artists start push, started pushing it more and more and sometimes it was like more blood more blood more blood and then of course you know you end up in uh in the dead alive <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, Peter Jackson world, which is amazing. Yeah, I, I it's a it's a great point too. It's a conversation I kind of have with people that something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Halloween or Exorcist looms large, and these they have the impression that it was a lot gorier than they were, or showing more than it did. And it's like, no, no, <laughs> that's just effective filmmaking. That you got the sense that you're your brain filled in these gaps and that's that's the beauty of the storytelling and so i so you know creep show season four it's a it's a show i still i just continue to love what shutter's doing over there and i continue to love creep show especially having been such a a fan at such a young age of the original film um from romero and uh from george and stephen king but 
as you're as the, has there been an evolution to your approach to this show and and sort of the second part of that is when you're dealing with an anthology show do you approach it with a season mission can it have a season mission when it's by nature all of these individual stories you know that's i i never really thought of it as a season mission i would think that from season one to season two there was a a massive evolution in the show because I was coming off of a walking dead hiatus and then we went right into season one of creep show. So it was a huge learning curve for me when we hit season two, which was ironically during the pandemic and we shot season two and three back to back. I was infinitely more confident in the material and what we were able to do in the time frame that we had to film these episodes. So I, I came off of, season two and three feeling really good about the storytelling. Um, I really like the idea that we can have a little bit of a, you know, social commentary in there that we're talking to, you know, relevant, you know, situations. You know, I know the, the drug traffic episode that we did with Michael Rooker um, was, was, was really relevant. There's a lot of episodes in season four. But, you know, I think what ended up happening on season four, too, was I had been exposed to a lot of new writers and loved a lot of the writers that I had worked with on season two and th one, two and three. So the idea was, OK, how do I get a chance to use all these amazing people that I've worked with? I only have so many stories to do. So. You know, I got a chance to work with Jamie Flanagan, who I absolutely loved his work on Midnight Mass, and, and I got to be good friends with him and Mike, his brother. So I was all of a sudden found myself kind of reaching out to these writers whose work I had, had admired and had been more recently introduced to. So I don't think that there's a mission statement overall, because like you said, it's such an anthology show that I wanted, I wanted all the episodes to feel different. You know, the idea is it's like when you watch one story and you're left with one feeling, whether it's outrageous or, or a, a, a little scary or suspenseful or gory, then the next, the next story gives you a different experience. So I feel, you know, looking for stories, for this season, there were a couple in there that I absolutely fell in love with that I think I had to kind of push the network in the right direction to say, guys, this story is pure creep show. Like George Romero in 3D, which is by nature, everybody kind of just thought, oh, we're not sure if that story is right and it might be too expensive. I said, yeah, but you don't understand. This, this is a creep show. This is such a creep show story. This this story doesn't exist in any other universe other than a universe that was created by George Romero. So I really was 100% committed to making sure that that, that that story was part of season four. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I want to get into that a little <clears throat> bit um, just because I know you directed two stories this yeah. season and we had 20 minutes with Cassandra and then the uh george romero in 3d and which 
I absolutely I I enjoyed both of those stories for very different reasons. Um, but George Romero in 3D, obviously it's the perfect one for you to direct, but it's it's also just I think this is the most blatant uh, Romero Valentine yet in Creep Show because you've had a pretty, you've had a lot of pretty uh, um, strong Romero Valentines, but this one, this is the the most obvious, I think. Yeah, I would have to say, uh, without a doubt, this is definitely the the one that really speaks to my. Um, my love for everything that George has done for the fans and done for people, you know, the characters are, are named Martin, you know, the characters named Don and Martin and, and Cooper, um, even so much so that the costume looks like, yeah, that, that Martin's uh, costume looks like John Amplis's costume from Martin, you know? So it really was a really great opportunity. Um, the idea when I first read the script and it was like, Oh, they bring zombies out of the comic book with 3D. You know, I know George loved 3D movies and he loved the idea of that sort of technology. You know, he had talked at one point about doing a couple of 3D movies um, years and years and years ago. So I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting because not a lot of people know that George had this fondness for 3D movies. So I thought it would be really fun. And of course I pitched to the network and said, invisible zombies. We've never done invisible zombies. Like how can you beat that? Um, so for me, just the ideas of like seeing somebody being bitten and attacked and then you put the glasses on it. Oh shit, there's the zombie. And you take the glasses off and the guy's bent over backwards with blood spraying out of his neck. It was really super fun for me. So, you know, ironically, I think that the Dawn of the Dead homage of the helicopter blade was not in the original script. And I think at one point we had come up with this idea that there was a military section in the store and somebody fly, gets a little remote control helicopter and flies the helicopter towards the zombie. And we were just like, man, you know, we got to be a little more clever than that because that seems a little too on the nose. And then I kind of went, wait a minute, why don't we just put a ceiling fan in the room and use the ceiling fan? So everything about that, you know, talking about Image 10 and, and Pittsburgh and that that used to be his office, you know, and I, it, it really, I just had so much fun. And the actors also were so, were so, so committed and had such a great time. You know, and there's Easter eggs all over the place. There's little Night of Living Dead figures on the counter, and a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that we did was was 100% relevant to uh, George's interests and the stuff that he loved. So, I think for sure that's probably the ultimate love letter to George, and I hope people dig it because it's just outrageous and fun. And and again, my whole my whole job here really is to keep the spirit of everything that George did alive. I mean, I'm doing it in a, in a, in a different way with the walking dead because George was the guy who created the zombie genre. He created it. He's the one that wrote the rules. You got to shoot it in the head. You get bit by one and you come back. I mean, people that think that these rules are part of now pop culture were all created 
by George and, and Jack Russo and Russ Streiner. So for me, being able to carry on that legacy and the legacy of everything that he's created, it's, it's me really desperately wanting for people to remember um, the maverick uh, filmmaker that he was. And a lot of these other filmmakers that aren't with us anymore, Wes Craven and Toby Hooper, and you know it's really important you know it's important that we that we embrace the people that inspired us yeah well the with the uh, uh george romero and 3d I, I some of my favorite moments throughout my career is i i was able to spend um a lot of time with george through interviews and then just through some various other friends of friends and i absolutely i i laughed out loud the uh, the couple times in this episode where Martin or one of the characters refers to them as zombies, and he's like, "Well, actually, ghouls." Uh, that that was great, uh, yeah. <laughs> and and I'm hoping <laughs> I'm hoping Shutter does not miss the opportunity to send out a press kit with 3D glasses in the shape of George's glasses. <laughs> Well, and again, that was one of my little things. I kind of just said, look, the glasses have to look like George's glasses. People thought I was kind of crazy when I said that. But I but I said, you know, there's something about the, he used to wear these giant uh, wide framed glasses. And he, you know, look, uh, my original hope was that we were going to go through interviews and and piece together all of George's dialogue from original interviews because we had really good luck with that when we did Night of the Living Late Show with Dana Gould. Dana scoured uh, Horror Express to find you know the moments that we could use to put, um, to have the dialogue with Justin and the characters. But with this one, you know, we just didn't have the time. I didn't have the time. So we ended up hiring uh, an actor that looked like him, and then we ended up hiring an actor to do the voice. I still wish that we had been able to sort of cobble together George's George's interviews. I subsequently got a lot of interviews on audio uh, from a friend that George had done right before he had passed away, which are hours and hours of him talking, and I probably could have put something together, but of course it was a little too late at that point. Yeah. Is it for you? Was it an interesting challenge? Because obviously the Romero ghouls, even what they kind of became by the end of uh, George's films and what Walking Dead does with the walkers, they're they're different kinds of zombies. And now you have this episode where you have, you know, you and K&B are putting together zombies that are not Walking Dead zombies, and they're not specifically George's zombies. We, we're kind of getting this hybrid of these two. Just kind of walk me through that. Maybe I'm missing it here, but they're, they're clearly not walkers. No, no. I mean, the, the, the aesthetic for, you know, it's kind of funny because if you really think about it, the zombies in Land of the Dead were precursors to The Walking Dead. So I think the the makeup effects in The Walking Dead benefited from the fact that I had done all the zombie makeups uh, on Land of the Dead. You know, in terms of the contact lenses and the dentures and this kind of stuff, we took it 
we evolved the look even further based on um, the inspiration from Tony Moore's artwork in the original graphic novel. But you know, these these zombies are probably more the needle would skew more towards the Romero world because I think we had one zombie that was dressed like a butcher because we had kind of done a little homage to to the butcher from Dawn of the Dead. Um, but you know, for me, they're they're less Walking Dead, and I didn't want them to look like Walking Dead zombies, right? Because I didn't think that that would that would make any sense. But you know, if you look at you know the main zombie that gets decapitated. We, you know, we recreated um, the helicopter zombie makeup from Dawn of the Dead. Like we had the whole headpiece on him the whole time, just like uh, just like Tom did in that movie. So I don't think you see it coming, but for us, we kind of giggled the whole time when we when we were on set with that, and literally accomplished the gag the exact same way. We had blood pump blood tubes running up to the top of the head. And we pulled the top of the head off with monofilament, it's just like, just like Tom had done, like I don't know, forty years ago, thirty-five years ago. How, how is this show? I don't want to. I don't want to suggest that <clears throat> everything you've done on The Walking Dead and now with Daryl Dixon, I, you've had such an incredible run and professional evolution as well. And then you're doing Creep Show. Is that how is this like a different fun flavor for you? Because tonally, it's a lot different, and yeah. it seems like this has been. I, it's almost like I can pick up the the Nicotero glee coming through the screen <laughs> with Creep Show. Well, I I think it's there. You know, I mean the uh, the fact that I get to choose the stories, I get to collaborate with the writers. And then get to collaborate with the directors. It's like there's a little bit of, there's a lot of me in all of the episodes. You know, I get to work with the directors and then casting the actors. You know, I'm I'm really, I really get a chance to kind of get in there with them. So it's almost, um, it's almost like me sort of handing off these little babies and saying, okay, you go grow that baby and you go grow that baby and then they 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 blossom into the into these episodes but they are fun man i mean you know the uh parent death trap with the ghosts like i read that script i literally laughed out loud when i read that script that was the first day of shooting it was the first episode and i went out and the the, we were shooting the first scene pj pesh my friend was directing and the two actors are there, the mom and the dad are there in the ghost makeup. And I went up to them and I just said, look, be as outrageous. This, this story is so over the top and so outrageous. And I really want you guys to play it big because what pulls it back is his reaction to you. So the bigger that you go, the funnier it will be when he reacts when when uh, the son reacts that way so i just have fun you know i read the stories i read a lot and you know when i go through the scripts and i go through even the stories that are pitched and i'm like i love this one yeah not so much and then there's always the one in the middle where i'm like yeah this is a great idea here maybe we can develop this one into something but generally speaking the home runs are the ones that um 
that 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 get made and they're the ones that i have the most i have the most fun with and you can tell they're fun at least i can um so yeah i think that there's there having evolved from the walking dead which again i think interestingly enough the walking dead also is so serious the content there's not a lot of there's not a lot of comedy in the walking dead it's everything is super heavy i think i directed one there was a season premiere season five there was a moment with morgan and rick and michonne and i'll never forget it and we're they were standing on this road and they had created these roadblocks to divert a whole zombie horde around alexandria and um there was a joke where uh morgan accuses michonne of eating one of his candy bars and i really i just played with that joke for a while because i thought it was really funny to have these looks between the both of them and just like she's lying to him but he knows that she's lying and i really played into it and we had a really really good time and afterwards andy came over to me and was like that was fucking fun I said yeah we don't get a chance to do the the light the lighter moments in the show because it's always it's always so bleak. So with Creep Show, I really do love playing into it. And it, you know, I, I don't get a lot of chance on the other shows to have that kind of fun. So to be on set and to be giggling, you know, Shapeshifters Anonymous, which is a really, really wacky, um, super wacky, outrageous um, episode. What was fun was I think that was a direct correlation to coming off of season one and season one was a little intimidating for me. So when we got to season two and I thought, no, I'm going to spread my wings a little bit. Like if Tim Burton were to direct a creep show episode, it would be really crazy and really outrageous and really fun. So Shapeshifters Anonymous is a direct result of me really wanting to sort of shed any um, aversion to just kind of throwing it all out there to, you know, to have a, you know, a group of people sitting around turning into different animals and Santa Claus being, you know, the ultimate werewolf killer. It, it, I had so much fun and laughed, literally giggled on set with the actors. And I just thought, you know, I want to have some fun like that. I want to be able to sit on set and giggle and have a good time and, 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 and just kind of be a little light because you're supposed to have fun when you're doing all this stuff. Yeah. Well, the, the 20 minutes with Cassandra, the, the first story of the, of the yeah. premiere episode of season four, it's, you have these gory moments or, you know, nice bloody horror moments. And then <laughs> this literal kind of sit down with a monster. And I, I, I really like, I, I, I really was already a fan of Jamie Flanagan's writing. And I think the actors in this just really bring this on home. And I was familiar with yeah. Ruth Codd from some of Flanagan's work as well. And, mm -hmm. and uh, so with that one for you, what was it that made you want to direct 20 minutes with Cassandra and, and talk about, I guess just that kind of story where it's like you have this, nice big monster reveal and then it's this kind of sit down heart to heart it was so different 
it was so different. I had never read anything like it. First of all, you know, we called Jamie um, because I had seen Midnight Mass and we were looking for writers. And he's like, yeah, you know, I, I don't really have anything, um, but I'm really, you know, delighted. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm delighted that you thought of me. Hangs up the phone. 20 minutes later, my phone rings. Hey, I think I got something. And I said, okay. So he writes the story and sends it to me and I read it. And immediately uh, I wanted more. I, I, I just sent it to the network and said, I'm directing this. This is our premiere episode. I see the whole thing. And, you know, Jamie, Jamie and I became joined at the hip. You know, he was really fascinated with the, uh, with the process. And I said, dude, just come shadow me. Like you can come sit in on the meetings, come to set. We really never had the opportunity to have any writers on set, but it was the, the tone. I loved the idea of this woman who's isolated herself. And then all of a second, her entire world is turned upside down by this woman who barges into her house and sets up this completely insane story of in 20 minutes, you're going to die and there's nothing I can do with it. I, I was so instantly captivated with that story. So we started talking about casting and, you know, because I had seen midnight mass, we started talking about Samantha who I was absolutely enthralled with and went I went to the network and said look it's all read, th this whole thing is already here you know Jamie has a lot of the same sensibilities that Mike does you know it's that sort of ensemble piece and you you play into the ensemble and you write these great parts for your troupe and that's where you know I have a lot of experience with that with Quentin and even more so with Frank Darabont you know I mean I remember working on <clears throat> you know, the Green Mile or um, or the Majestic or, and it's always the same troupe. It's Jeff DeMond and it's Laurie Holden and it's, you know, Tom Jane and, you know, uh, he, Frank and uh, people like Frank, you know, like they use the same actors. They have this troupe. And the fun part of that is that the, that troupe gets to play all these different people. <clears throat> so we got Samantha, we got Ruth, instantly and i kind of thought okay um it, it took a lot of the pressure off of me because i knew that they were both like really really seasoned and you know the first weekend that they got there we did a table read and, and samantha had a creep show t-shirt on and i'm like come on really and she's like i swear to god i didn't even realize um that i was wearing this t-shirt but you know we had three and a half days to shoot that episode and and I don't think Samantha blew her lines once. She and Ruth had been working on um, Mike's other show. Um, um, Usher? I can't remember. No, 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 no. Uh, yeah. Oh, Midnight Club. The other one. Midnight Club. I'm sorry. I was going to say Midnight Mass, but I knew that was wrong. They had been working on Midnight Club. So Samantha and Ruth were learning their lines for creep show while they were working on Mike's show. So when they came into it, um, 
you know, and Ruth used to be a makeup effects artist. So she had done makeup. So we kind of all really hit it off. We had a good time. I think we were kind of all sort of slightly in awe of each other. Like I would look over and see them and be like, oh my God, I can't believe they're here. And they were like, we can't believe we're here. It was really, it's really a unique experience. And Jamie too, Jamie would sit beside me while we were shooting every episode. You know, when the pizza guy, the scene with the pizza guy, it's just such a beautifully written scene. I mean, you know, the, the cut for the episode came in probably five or six minutes longer and we had to squeeze and it was literally like I hated I hate it was like it was like pruning the beautiful roses out of the garden I hated doing it but it was like we would just take a little couple two lines of dialogue out of here and a piece out of here and a piece out of here it was just trying to keep the entire bit um consistent but that scene with the pizza delivery guy was just one of the most beautiful and i and i i remember saying to jamie when we were scouting locations and we found the house <clears throat> and i said she's got to be up on the balcony because this is romeo and juliet i want this to be like a really strange love story she's not just a, out the window looking out the window but she's got to be above him looking down and when she, when he gets back into the car and there's that shot cut. I think in the original script, like he bolts into the window and grabs her or he pops up from the back seat. And I just said, you know, the less we see of this monster, the better. So I love the idea of he's just in the car and then the blood hits the windshield and the car just slowly backs. It's, there's something so sad about it. I didn't want it to be violent. Or, or gross or horrific. I wanted it to be sad. I wanted that moment to really show um, how Samantha's character just was heartbroken by the loss of this person who she had just met and found this really nice connection with. Yeah, it's it's a great episode with just incredible dialogue. I I I, I absolutely loved uh, that story. And me too. Me too. I my bosses would kill me if I didn't try to slip in uh, a Daryl Dixon question, if I may. Of course, please. Okay. The uh, well, we've used the word evolution a couple times in this in this interview about your career and about Creep Show, but we're also seeing this evolution with Daryl Dixon the series. Uh, well, one thing is like zombie super soldiers, man. Like you're like you're yeah. uh, evolving our walkers, so just that's kind of mind-blowing we've been living with sort of this static we kind of got the rules of the of the walkers for so long maybe seeing them climb or turn doorknobs but even that was late in the game so late, late in the game yeah the decision to do this but where did this come from and how are you feeling about man we're expanding this world you know it's funny because i think a lot of people would have assumed that i would have fought it because I'm a purist and I'm like, you know, zombies are zombies and they don't really change. But <clears throat> in the past, you know, like you said, the stuff that came up late in the game on Walking Dead didn't feel like it was earned. That, that, that you know, variant that, that was introduced in the last half of the season of The Walking Dead, it didn't make any sense because it wasn't earned. They were like, oh, well, you know, if you go back to the first season, zombies used rocks and smashed windows. And I'm like, it didn't make any sense that after 
11 seasons, we had never seen any of that. But with this, we, we have the burners, and then we have the fact that the scientists are, um, are uh, experimenting with them. And so we worked a lot with, you know, David Zabel, and David and I really talked about, like, what do these things look like? What is the progression? And, you know, I had pitched the idea of the tranquilizer darts with this fluid in it that sort of amps up the walkers for a short period of time. I mean, I don't even know if it comes through in the in the series just yet, but the idea is that those zombies are only amped up for about three or four minutes, and then they sort of fizzle out, and it doesn't work with every single one. But I love the evolution of it. I loved that everything about Daryl Dixon is new, and it's fresh. We have uh, all of our writers are all new to the genre and new to new to the series so they never they never wrote on a walking dead episode before they brought new ideas fresh ideas interesting ideas and you know my job was really to provide some sort of continuity between the series and the original series and daryl dixon plus to sort of download to the new team okay, here's some ways to do gags. Here's gags we've done before. Here's stuff we don't want to do again. But everything about the show feels new. And I'll be honest, you know, when we wrapped the 12th season of Walking Dead and they started talking about doing spinoffs, I was like, oh my God, I just want to, can I not see a zombie for a minute? Can I just, I, I just need a, a, a minute. Um, and then when we did Dead City, you know, honestly, Dead City, really, we had one big zombie, which was the Walker King, uh, which was our sort of homage to John Carpenter and the thing. And turned out really well. And that was like the coolest zombie that, that was in that show. But other than that, there wasn't a tremendous amount that evolved the zombies very much. But on Daryl Dixon, I feel like every swing was a big swing. And the location, you know, it doesn't feel like we're in Paris to exploit Paris. Everything really all lays into this journey. And when we first found out that Daryl was going to, to, to France, uh, everybody would, people would stop me on the street. How does he get there? How does he get there? I'm like, I can't tell you that. It'll ruin, it'll ruin the experience for you. And now finally we've revealed how he gets there. Um, and that these people had been coming from France to the United States to harvest zombies, to take them across, to do experiments on them so that they could evolve them and use them as potential zombie soldiers. Now, if you think about it, I think in the original script for Day of the Dead, that was one of the things that they were doing was that they were feeding zombies uh, human flesh to train them to be soldiers. So it's not a new concept uh, by any stretch of the, of the imagination, but the fact that we have been able to really lean into it. And, you know, I took a lot of inspiration from uh, David Cronenberg and Dick Smith, like with scanners, you know, the pulsating veins. And, you know, I think the original idea was when a burner is near somebody, the veins start to pulse more like the, like the active ingredient is pulsing more. And I think in the first scene in episode one, where Daryl's in the market and kills the burners 
and you see the one zombie on the ground, you still see the veins pulsing. The idea was that those that pulsing would stop so that the the burners are sort of activated um, when they're, you know, when they're about to about to kill somebody or eat somebody or whatever. Um, and then we have the amped up zombies and we wanted that to be a little bit of a different experience. So where, whereas we had the sort of scanners, really thick fluid filled light colored veins, um, with the ampers, it's, it's more of a Sam Raimi evil dead tribute where the black veins, you know, I always remember in the first evil dead, um, where you they, he did the stop motion. Remember when they would draw the veins on? And I think we did it. We did it in Evil Dead too on the hand when Linda bit um, Ash's hand. Um, we had that close up because I remember doing it, and we did stop motion where we drew the veins and we'd shoot a little bit and shoot a little bit, and the veins would grow. So the Ampers is is sort of more of a tribute to that demonic possession that we did where you see the black, you know, you see the dark go in and then the black veins sort of um, travel across the skin and then the eyes go black. And again, I thought we needed to differentiate. If you look at the burners, the burners' eyes are kind of like a, a weird bright blue, almost like looking at the center of a candle or a flame where it's like that blue hot. Um, and then the amper's eyes are black because that fluid sort of affects everything inside. So we just felt like not only um, physically did they need to act differently, but they needed something to, to identify them um, as different types of, of, of zombies other than our traditional ones. Well, I, and I, I know you got to go, but I, I just want to leave with a statement that, yeah, so it feels like with Daryl Dixon, the, you're leaving a lot on the field. You're putting a lot out there and it does yeah. feel, and this is no disrespect to the walking dead franchise that has been so, uh, you know, had such a long life, but it feels like this is really a fresh coat of paint and also feeling kind of fun in a new yeah. way. And I hope yeah. you're feeling that too. Look, we, you know, I was really honored you know, when, when they started prepping that show, Norman called me and said, look, we can't do the show without you. You're part of the DNA of The Walking Dead. Like, you were there. I was hired a year before Walking Dead went or whatever went into production. So there's a huge part of me in The Walking Dead. Like, I feel like I'm part of my, I'm part of the DNA of the show. And Norman really wanted me to be there to collaborate with the directors and the producers and the writers. And, you know, it took a minute for me to sort of sort of convince myself that that I wanted to do another zombie show. But then when I read the scripts and I met David Zabel and I realized that he wasn't just rehashing everything that we had been doing, but that he wanted to do something dramatically different. And that's what what excited me about it. And, you know, the show all of the enthusiasm and the glee that Norman has for the show too, because Norman just loves every second of, of being in Paris and creating these great locations and going to Mont Saint Michel and going to the Louvre and the catacombs. And, you know, there's a, there's a glee that we all feel uh, and an appreciation that we all feel for being there and being able to tell the story. 
And it's crazy too. The first day we went to set with zombies, you know, we did zombie school and I, and I did my auditions for all the local zombie actors. And I worked with a lot of the French stump people and sort of told them, this is how we do it. And then we evolved the performances for the amped up zombies and for the burners and stuff. But I'll never forget first day on set, we walk in with 80 zombies and the entire crew stopped and started applauding because they had never seen anything like that. We've been in Georgia for 12 years where I think the first two seasons, people would stop and go, oh my God, look at that zombie. But after 12 years, they're like, oh, eating a cheeseburger next to a rotted corpse. You know, they just didn't really, it didn't have the same impact. But in France, the, the crew and the people, it was like we were starting over. I really feel like Daryl Dixon is the way that it felt doing season one of The Walking Dead. The enthusiasm, the dedication to the story, uh, the storytelling, the actor's performance, uh, everything about it feels new and feels fresh. And I'm proud that that came through because Norman didn't want us to rehash it. I didn't want us to rehash it. Um, we didn't want more of the same. And that's the one thing that you can say about Daryl Dixon is you watch it, you're getting a completely new um, a completely new experience. And, and that's what we set out to do. And we're really proud that we were able to accomplish that. Well, congratulations, Greg. And uh, thanks for talking Thank to me again. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. So new season of creep shows uh, begins yes. this Friday and uh, more uh, Daryl Dixon wrapping up the season. So uh, hope we get the chance to talk again soon, Greg, but thank me you again, too. sir. Thanks pal. And that was Greg Nicotero showrunner for Creepshow, which is premiering its fourth season on Shudder on Friday, October 13th. And we also talked about The Walking Dead, Daryl Dixon series, which has its season finale on Sunday, October 15th. And I'm Aaron Sagers, and that's it for me. That's it for this episode of Talking Strange, so thanks for hanging out with me. Until next time, you know the drill. Be kind, stay spooky, and keep it weird. Talking Strange is a part of the Den of Geek Network, available wherever you listen to other podcasts. If you like what we're doing, share Talking Strange with your friends and fellow spooky nerds. And please, subscribe, rate, and leave a nice review. If you have a strange or paranormal story you would like to share with us, please email talkingstrange at denofgeek.com for a chance to have it read on a future episode. For video episodes of Talking Strange, check out twitch.tv slash denofgeektv and youtube.com slash denofgeekus. And please follow at TalkStrangePod on Twitter and at Aaron Sagers on Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon for more paranormal pop culture content. Mm-hmm.